community, I believe it's like a group of people that are together and work together, like teamwork. A group of people who share kind of similar uh, values and can grow and learn off of each other and also support each other. If you're in a crisis or if you need emotional support, you can just go to them. You don't owe them anything for that. Sometimes I feel like I look really forward to going to a certain place that I think of as being my scene or my spot, and then I show up and I don't feel as connected. There are times when I do feel like an alien. You don't know your neighbors and people are constantly moving in and out of the city. So I think for someone coming to the city, you really have to work to find your community. Like, you can't passively get it. I think we both think, share that yeah. <laughs> feeling of isolation sometimes. <laughs> no. Um, I wish I had more community around me, but I don't. Look at the fire in a fireplace. And look at all these big logs and the small logs and they're all kind of burning together. You take one of these away from the fireplace and put it out in the yard or put it somewhere else by itself, it will die down. Spiritually, you're gonna be quenched completely because you're all alone. Now you get that log in the fireplace and the fire will just be a blessing to everybody. Technologically, we're the most connected that we've ever been. However, we're also the loneliest. I think for generations, people have kind of seen church as the place where the good people go instead of the place where those who are hungry and thirsty go. There was some shift into, first you must behave correctly to come in here, and then believe what we believe. Then maybe we'll let you belong. That's completely inverted. That's not the way the church is supposed to be structured. It's no, you belong here. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God uses His church to shape and conform us. Belonging is what our 2020 vision is all about. We need to wake up to the importance of ministering to one another. We need to wake up to the importance of loving one another in communities. And let me tell you without hesitation <laughs> that we are going to serve and we're going to do and we're going to give and we're going to sacrifice, but in Jesus' name. What we're asking is three things. First is for them to lead people to Jesus. Second is to join a small group or a discipleship group. And the third is to serve our city together. Our biggest needs our most desperate need is to know that we are loved and forgiven and that our sins and guilt are placed under the blood of Jesus Christ. I was blind, but now I see. You can't argue with that. That is the personal testimony. Just say, God transformed my life and I love you enough to want you to come and experience the same thing. He changed me, He can change you. I'm gonna tell you what, you let people get around that and you let people feel that acceptance and that love of the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will have their hearts changed. They will repent and believe more often than not. In a church service, it's a one-way communication. 
When you're in a small group, it's two-way. I know that God wants us to be in fellowship with each other, but I can tell that He specifically put this group together. We can relate to each other, but also push each other to grow in areas where others are weak. To me, it just fulfills a very human need to feel like you're not going through something by yourself. There's a community of people around you who are experiencing the exact same thing and are willing to keep you accountable to that. Small groups gives you the opportunity to meet with other people that you can unpack deep spiritual truths or wrestle over deep spiritual truths with. I needed it. 30 years ago, I was thrilled when one pastor called me and that led into another pastor. And then the three of us walked together for a number of years. That walk of faith is invaluable. Anybody who's done it will testify to it. Who's my neighbor? Your neighbor is anyone who's in need. You see a need, you meet the need, you have acted as loving to your neighbor. When we realize that the church is in a building and that we are the church, we can take the church with us. We go out in the community, we show them what the church is like as Christ lives in and through us. Whenever you have helped somebody who is helpless, what you've really done is you've really rehearsed the gospel that is preached. Serving outside of the four walls of the church has just been transformational because the places that it takes us provides an opportunity for us to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. The Lord has chosen us to be a part of this group because he knows that in choosing us, we're all bringing something different to the table. And then when we go out and serve, it is the body. We lead people to Jesus in a community where they matter and belong. That means that we strive to share with them the hope that we have, to introduce them to a gospel where they're not just a nameless person, they're significant in Christ. Come, know Jesus, who loves you and wants to redeem you and forgive you all of your sins. Join with like-minded believers. We are celebrating together that we are redeemed to people and that we're going to be together, not just in this life, but for eternity. Amen. Now, whether this is your first time here at Apostles, or you've been coming here for months, I want you to get that card that in front of you, in the pew in front of you, just take that card. And if you were touched by these testimonies and the importance of belonging to a group of people who would love you, encourage you, support you, as well as you encouraging them and supporting them, I want you to take this and, and, and fill it out. Take time now even and fill it out. And then there are three things here, small groups, other Bible classes, or others. There are a lot of those cards, so I want you to fill them out. Then leave them in the seat where you are seated and the ushers will come and pick them up at the end of the service. Amen? Remembering. You see, that is the theme of the Scripture, from cover to cover. Remembering. From the very beginning of history, um, God has established that certain dates, uh, significant moments, and that important events are to be celebrated. I remember a friend years ago said, well, the church is always celebrating the past. But no, 
we only celebrate the past as much as it helps propel us into the future vision. Uh, 2020 is our future vision. By 2020, we want to see everybody in a small community, discipleship, and an opportunity to minister to one another, strengthened by one another. And that is why you see that theme in the Scripture over and over and over again. God is saying to His people, remember, 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 remember. I mean, if, if you read the Bible once a year like I do, many of you are, you see that word repeated so many times you can't even count them. Remember the Passover. Uh, when the angel of death came in the, in, in, in the homes in Egypt, and, and, and then he would see the blood on the doorposts of the Israelites, God's people, did it in obedience, and he sees that, and he'll pass. He'll pass. That's what I call passing over. Um, and, and, and those families stayed safe and intact, but the ones who did not suffered loss. Remember the crossing of the Red Sea. Remember the crossing of the River Jordan. Remember, remember, remember. It is the theme of the Scripture. Remember the past faithfulness of God in your life. Remember the past grace that God has brought in your life. Remember past mercies that God had brought you through. Remember the hand of God that supernaturally worked in you and through you in the past. Remember where you were and where you are today. Remember. Question, why do you think the God who created us, the God who made us, the God who knows our very DNA, every one of us, the God who knows every cell in our, every, each of our bodies, why He instructed His people, instructing us over and over again to remember. Well, for one thing, He knew as our maker and creator. He knew what a forgetful creatures we are. What a forgetful creatures we are. I know we joke about and we make fun of people who are forgetful and, and all that kind of, we give it all sorts of names and get, make excuses for it. <laughs> uh, you know, some people are just forgetful. And in, in fact, uh, I don't know whether you know this or not, that memory and remembering is now a big business. It's a billion-dollar business, <laughs> um, partly because of the information overload uh, we are not able to remember uh, like our forebears did. Uh, but not only that, the reason God says remember, remember, remember is because the act of remembering fills us with gratitude and with thankfulness. Fills us. Now, now you know this. I, I, I don't have to tell you, but there is nothing can be more disheartening uh, than dealing with an ungrateful person. I, I, I mean someone uh, for whom you have done so much, uh, uh, and the person just takes it for granted, or, or, or there is uh, nothing more heartbreaking than, 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 than dealing with someone uh, for whom you have made a huge and great sacrifices, and all they say to you is, yeah, but what have you done for me lately? <laughs> Remembering the past graciousness of God always leads us to being thankful and grateful people. That's why God wants us to remember. That is why, because remembering brings about gratitude. Even our Lord Jesus Christ Himself, He has expressed deep disappointment when He healed ten lepers. Nine of them were Jews. They were the people of the covenant. Only one was a Samaritan who's outside of the covenant. And yet, 
only that Samaritan, that foreigner, the Bible calls, came back to thank Jesus for his healing. And as a result, the Bible said this one person was forgiven eternally and eternally saved as well as physically healed. Gratitude can do wonders in our lives, and that's why God wants us to remember. A while back, I read a story in the newspapers. It's a well-known story of a person who was a memory expert. Uh, He specialized in helping people to remember names and events, particularly uh, in sales conventions and in in different uh, business executives. He would be the favorite speaker, and he would come, and uh, he, in fact, earned a doctorate on the subject of remembering. Uh, He wrote books on the subject of remembering. He had fashioned a very popular course study on systematic memory uh, uh, development in, in one's life. And he would charge a small fortune to come and speak to groups of people. And one day, he was invited to be a keynote speaker to a convention in Cleveland, Ohio, of scientists. These scientists were skeptical, but they said, well, you know, we want to hear what he has to say. So they all signed up, and the many scientists gathered in Cleveland, Ohio at this convention, and they came that night, and everybody was there looking forward to hearing this great expert, and he didn't show up. So they called him in California where he lived, (laughs) and he simply said, I just forgot all about it. (laughs) I forgot all about it. Now, we all know we've experienced forgetfulness. I I, I know that, but… and we give it all sorts of names, but it is what it is. Uh, There's no use trying to kind of paint on it. Uh, The other day, someone said, talking about another person who has a poor memory, and he said, well, the advantage of having a poor memory is that you have less to forget. (laughs) I haven't thought about it that way, but (laughs) give me something to think about. (laughs) And our Lord Jesus Christ knew all about this proclivity to forgetfulness. He knew all about it. He knew how that forgetfulness leads to ingratitude. And that is why he instituted the Lord's Supper as means of not forgetting. Not forgetting that colossal sacrifice that he made on that cross. Not forgetting the enormous price that he paid for your salvation and for mine. Not forgetting his gracious act of self-giving so that we may be forgiven. Now, of course, the danger of constantly uh, uh, having these services as rich, a ritual, just as a habit, uh, the danger is it becomes a regular ritual, and, and you forget the meaning, and you forget the, what it really means, and some churches do that. On a regular basis, they just go, and they do it by rote. It's become a routine. You just go, and you do this Sunday after Sunday. Then the danger is they're keeping the symbol, but they've lost the meaning. In fact, the danger of keeping, keeping the symbolism and losing the meaning is the very problem of the church in Corinth. And I know some of you are visiting today, but for the past 16 uh, messages, we have been looking through this epistle of Paul, first one to Corinthians, and we're calling it healthy living in a sick world. And if is a message and a passage and an epistle that is relevant for us today is 1 Corinthians. And here, 
the passage that David read this morning, 11, chapter 11, verse 17 to 34. Turn it to it with me. Here you get the very clear impression that the church in Corinth was celebrating the Lord's Supper regularly, but they ended up abusing it. Even today, this great remembrance of that colossal sacrifice of our Lord Jesus Christ on the cross is misused and abused in some traditions. Some have turned it into a somber event. Others have turned it into an institutional requirement that actually people believe that they are saved when they take communion. I'm going to explain to you in a minute that communion is for the believers. Communion cannot save you. Jesus saved you, and you remember His death and resurrection when you participated in communion. Others still practice it on a very few occasions. Here in 1 Corinthians 11, turn to it with me if you haven't already. Paul corrects so many of the misunderstandings, misunderstandings that need to be corrected today. <laughs> and in correcting them, the great apostle gives us a clear indication what the Lord's Supper is all about, what the Lord's table is all about. It is a loving celebration, a true spiritual enrichment, and not a time for selfish indulgence. In the case of the Corinthians, they turned it into a time for shaming the poor Christians. <laughs> As a matter of fact, it turned out to be a time of scandalizing the church of Jesus Christ in front of an unbelieving world. And in correcting them, the Apostle Paul gives them three things. If you're taking notes, take them, put them down, because uh, you need to remember those. Wherever you are and wherever church you may go to, whatever any time you participate at the Lord's table, somebody said, now that you're preaching on it, should we have communion? I said, no, this is, a time, this is a lesson for all the ages. This is a time for the rest of your life. It's not just for one emotional moment on Sunday and, and, and celebrate the Lord's table. We will next week. But I want you to remember those three things. Remember them, remember them, remember them. First of all, Paul is saying, stop perverting the Lord's table. Secondly, he said, understand the purpose of this table. Understand what it's, what it's really all about. And thirdly, he's saying, there is a right and a wrong way to celebrate the Lord's table. Let's look at them very quickly. First of all, he said, stop perverting it. How could these Corinthians were perverting the Lord's table? If you look at verse 18, These believers in Corinth, and if you've been listening for any period of time or if you weren't here, download the messages in the past because you'll learn one thing about these folks. Some of you remember, they were cantankerous. Have you ever been with a group of cantankerous Christians? Nothing worse. Nothing worse. Trust me. Trust me. I've been around the world many times. I've seen it. <laughs> they were cantankerous people. And Paul said, you know what? I couldn't agree more. I know this about you is true. <laughs> they could not agree on anything. I mean, they absolutely disagreed on every issue. It's like a friend of mine was talking about a certain group of people who shall remain nameless to whom he belongs. And he said, I'll tell you something about my people. Whenever you get four of them in a meeting together, you get five opinions. 
And he's right. Now, these Corinthians could not agree on anything. They loved divisiveness in the church. They, these Corinthians loved creating division and, and fights and arguments. So these Corinthians, each of them, were in love with their own opinion, and they were not listening to anybody else. Instead of seeking to serve one another, they looked for opportunities to stir dissension. And the Apostle Paul said, I believe this about you, Corinthians. And sadly, instead of looking out for the welfare of one another, instead of loving one another, uh, they were looking for number one, out for number one. Instead of seeking the kingdom of God first and His righteousness first, they were promoting themselves first. Uh, instead of honoring the Lord, they sought the honor for themselves. Instead of being servants of one another, as indeed you saw in that video, and that's the purpose the, of 2020 vision. That's the heart of our, who we are as a church, serving one another. They set themselves as masters. Instead of being subject to spiritual authority, they absolutely despised spiritual authority. And the reason for all of this Dissension is carnality. Somebody say, well, there's no such thing as carnal Christian. Yeah, but there is such a thing as disobedient Christian. <laughs> That's what it means. Some are going to see verse 19 to be a very disturbing verse. Look at it with me, please. Some of you probably already read it some time ago in your private devotions, and he said, man, this is really disturbing. And I'm telling you, just in case, it is disturbing to me. <laughs> I'm going to explain it to you because it's very important. What Paul is saying here is that God uses these cantankerous Christians, <laughs> God uses these carnal and divisive Christians to purify the righteous Christians. Hello. I told you, <laughs> it's not a fun verse. Um, even these div divisive, uh, cantankerous, contentious people, God used them to purify us and to sanctify us. In years gone by, we used to have a member in this church who would say to me, Michael, God's call on my life is to be a sandpaper to you. And he was. <laughs> and as Dr. Criswell used to say, he became one of those blessed subtractions. <laughs> I mean, he just thought this was God's call on his life. But listen, listen to me. If you see these people as a problem, you won't grow through it. But if you see them as God's way of sanctifying you, purifying you, uh, it's like the fire. The fire, when the gold is put on fire, the fire basically helps separate the gold from the dross. And that's what they do. So before you get angry, and I'm preaching at me, not to you. <laughs> Just remember this. Remember, give thanks to God for them. I know, I know this is a hard sell. Listen, trust me. I know it experientially is a hard sell. Uh, but there can be no doubt that the Apostle Paul is saying that this, these fractious people, not merely disruptive, but they can be destructive. And that is why we should not really put up with them for too long. The Bible gives us with clarity what to do with such people. In Titus chapter 3, verse 10, the Bible said, reject a fractious person after a first 
and a second warning, knowing that such a person is perverted and sinning and is being self-condemned. In the Corinthian church, these fractious people, they were operating even at the Lord's table. Even when it comes to the Lord's table, they were in operation. Uh, but there's something else here that I want to clarify. Just remember this. And I know some people, when I say this, they say, oh, really? Yeah. The way we celebrate the Lord's Supper in this church, or any church for that matter, it's not the way the early church celebrated it. People say, you admit that? Of course. In fact, nothing that we do that is done exactly the same way the early church did it. We've got to be truthful about these things, right? (laughs) Because in the early church, the Lord's Supper was a full-blown meal. How do you like feeding 2,000 people every Sunday? (laughs) Now, in case of the Corinthian church, they were fractious people, and they were perverting the Lord's table and making a mockery of it. Look at verse 20. Paul said, it could no longer be called the Lord's table. Oh, my goodness gracious. Wouldn't that be something that I would literally sit there and weep hot tears if somebody says, this is so perverted, it's no longer called the Lord's table. That's what happened in that church. May God forbid ever that happens here. They had the ceremony, but not the celebration. They had the form, but not the substance. And Christ had no part of these services. Why? Because in their hearts, they had no love for one another. Lord forbid it. They may have talked about love. Oh, they probably sang about love, and they they, they read about love, but their hearts were hard as rocks. Paul is going to say more about love in chapter 13 when we get to it. They had so much pride and selfishness in their hearts that their walk did not match their talk. And that is why, secondly, they needed to comprehend afresh what the Lord's table is all about. Look at verses 23 all the way to 26. For I received from the Lord what I've passed on to you. Listen, those of you be visiting here, you need to understand, in this church, we only preach what God says in His book. And if you would like that, please come back. Because you're not going to hear pop psychology from this pulpit. You're only going to hear the Word of God. And Paul is saying here, this is not Paul's opinion. This is not uh, Paul's ideas. Uh, This is not Paul's thoughts. Paul is merely reinstating God's truth. He is merely reinstating God's revelation. And that's what we're all about. What is that? That in the midst of betrayal… God did a magnificent thing, that in the midst of the world's malignant evil, God established His good, that in the midst of Satan's wickedness, God planted holiness, that in the midst of ingratitude and greed, God established generosity and self-sacrifice, that in the midst of grabbing and taking, God established giving of His one and only begotten Son. Even in the midst of the Corinthians' factionalism and division and jealousy and self-centeredness, the Lord's table stood as a symbol of forgiveness. 
and renewal. I'm going to come in a minute and explain to you the manner by which we come to the Lord's table, because this is very important. If you, don't, if you miss that, you miss the whole institution of the Lord's Supper, of any church or any denomination. Let me give you a quick background, a minute and a half. In order to fully comprehend what the Lord's Supper is all about, you have to understand the Passover. Without understanding the Passover in the Old Testament, this does not make sense. Really, not a great deal of sense. Even if you know that this is a symbol of Christ dying on the cross. You see, the Passover was celebrated by God's people to remember the gracious act of God for delivering them from the slavery of Egypt. And that is why you must understand that that Passover meal found its ultimate fulfillment in the Lamb of God who has delivered us from the slavery of sin and Satan. Can I get an amen? amen. The Passover was an indicator. What's the value of an indicator? An indicator says, go this way. You want to go north? Go here. You want to go to the such and such place? Go this way. That's what an indicator is. And beloved, that's what the word sacrament means. The word sacrament says a sign. Go this way. There is nothing sacred about the sacrament of baptism. There's nothing sacred about the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. It says go this way. It takes you beyond itself. That's what a sacrament is. And the Passover meal found its ultimate fulfillment in the cross of Jesus Christ. The Passover was an indicator. It was pointing to the cross. The Passover was the shadow that reflected the cross of Jesus Christ. The Passover found its true meaning in the cross of Jesus. Can I get an amen? amen. And the Old Testament saints who were saved, they were saved by looking forward to the cross, even as the Bible said that Abraham saw the days of Jesus and he rejoiced. 2,000 years before Christ, he looked forward to it. Just as we in the New Testament times, we look back to the cross and we become saved. The cross is the focus. The cross is the center. And that's why I love it. I had to smile when people want to do the Seder meal. I said, what do you want to go back to the shadow? <laughs> When we're given the real thing, we have gone away from the shadow, we went away from the picture, now we have the cross. It is only the cross of Jesus Christ that anyone, 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 anywhere in the world, anyone, regardless of background or ethnic background or wherever they come from in the world, it is only through the cross of Jesus Christ can you escape the condemnation of hell. And that is why Jesus said, that is why Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me. It's not a church table. It's, it's Jesus' table. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember what I have done for you. Remember the sacrifice. And don't just go through the motions. Remember and relive the moment of agony on that cross when he carried your sin and my sin on his sinless body. Remember to relive that moment of uh, 
indescribable pain of separation from the Father, which was for the first time since before eternity because of your sin that carried on His shoulders. Remember to experience what it is like for Him. The pure, sinless, holy Son of God carries your sin, your sin, your sin, your sin, my sin. I want to illustrate something about the Lord's table that hopefully is going to explain what Paul is saying here. The very first time, almost 40 years ago now, that we ever visited London, the city of London, we were given three maps. We got a map of the city, uh, we got a map of the underground, the tube, and then we had a map of the motorways, M1, M2, and so forth. There are three maps. Um, and all these three maps are true in themselves. Each one of them uh, does not give you a complete picture. To get a complete picture, you have to put all those three maps on top of each other. <laughs> but that's very confusing. It will be a bunch of jungles and you jumbles, and you want, you, you want to understand. It's very confusing. And that is why a new believer must understand those three maps. In the same way, these three words describe the death of Christ on the cross. First, redemption. Can you say that with me? Then reconciliation and justification. Each of those three words is like the three maps of London. They're accurate and correct by themselves, but for a person to comprehend, especially those who may coming to the Lord new in the knowledge of Christ, uh, to comprehend this, you have to understand if you try to put all the three maps together, three words together can be confusing. And that is why the Lord's table helps us separate each of those three words, each of those three concepts, either of these three truths helps us separate them. In verse 26, the Lord's table, when you come to it, you proclaim the death of Christ in the past. So you remember the past. You proclaim the death, remembering His death on the cross. But secondly, you remember the present, the present promise of empowerment. Jesus promised to empower us to live this life. Whatever your problems may be, and we all have them, whatever difficulties you're going through, whatever pain you're experiencing, remember His promise of strength and power to live for Him today. That's the present but also a remembering of the future. Those are the three things. You remember the future. The day is coming, and maybe even quicker than we think, and maybe even sooner than any of us think. The day is coming when the Lord will preside over His table at the marriage supper of the Lamb where all the believers are going to be gathered together. So it's past. It's strength in the present and remembering the future, our future. Don't pervert the Lord's table. Secondly, he said, understand its real meaning. And thirdly, 
and most importantly, is verses 27 to 34. He tells us how to approach the Lord's table. Why do I say importantly? Because the vast majority of you here, or even those who are watching around the world right now live, are in the category, the third category here. Approaching the Lord's table and how you do that. It is very important, beloved. It is very important to know the right way to approach the table of the Lord. And I'm going to tell you, never, 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 never approach it casually. Please, if you remember one thing, and you hear me say every communion service, twice a month I'll say, Whoever participates in the Lord's table, it's coming out of these verses, in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. What is that unworthy manner? What does that mean? What's unworthy manner? Now, there are several ways in which you can come to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Listen carefully. This is not very long. I'm, I'm, I, I'm aware of the fact that you want to take mom out to lunch, I hope. Uh, and if you haven't, you know, I hope you came to the breakfast this morning. Either way, I am watching my time, so I don't want you to, I don't want to lose you, okay? Don't, don't lose concentration with me. This is important. There are several ways of coming to the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. Coming to the table out of a habit, participating in the Lord's table just out of a habit, without engaging your mind without engaging your heart in the process of that participation. Secondly, unworthy manner is when you treat the elements as sacred in themselves. Not what they point to, what they represent. Now, there are some churches teach that you are not saved unless you participate every week, and if you don't, you have to go to confession. So they heap guilt on people. If they don't come, they're not saved. So they have to come and get their little thing. <laughs> I live next door to one of those churches, and my goodness gracious, I see them rushing in late and coming in earlier just where they got their little thing. I mean, that's, they're gonna, that is saved. I just want to stand there and weep. The third way, which is, I believe, relevant for not 99% of us, all 100% of us, including your pastor. The third way, participating at the Lord's table in an unworthy manner is coming with an unconfessed sin. With unconfessed sin. When you come and participate at the Lord's table in any church, carrying bitterness and hatred and anger, and living in deliberate disobedience. And they come to the Lord's table without confession and without repentance. That's unworthy manner. When we come to the Lord's table with anything less than love for God and love for one another, we're sinning against God. I want to express an opinion. I always give you an opinion when it's an opinion. It's not the Word of God. And I speak as an immigrant who loves this country with all his heart. Those who don't know me sometimes in the social media give me a hyphenated name, something American. I always say, no, 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 it's just American. That's all. Don't give me a hyphenated name. 
Those who want hyphenated, God bless them. I don't want one. I'm happy to be, and I love this country. And that is why I'm giving you this illustration from my own heart. When I see someone burning the American flag, to me, that person is burning more than just a piece of cloth. They are trampling on the country that this flag represents. And it grieves me. If I'm in authority, I'll outlaw it. But thank God I'm not. <laughs> and so when I go to the Lord's table with an unconfessed sin in my heart, I am not dishonoring the bread and the wine. I'm dishonoring the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. I'm dishonoring the Lord whose sacrifice is represented in these elements of bread and wine. Hear me right, please. Receiving in an unworthy manner does not necessarily dishonor the ceremony or the ritual. It dishonors the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. So what is the right way to participate at the Lord's table? Well, I'm glad you asked because the Word of God has the answer, not me. Verse 24, examine yourself before you eat and drink. Sift out the wrong desires. Sift out the wrong attitudes. Sift out the wrong motives. Sift out any sin of thought, word, or actions. Ask yourself the question, have I wronged anyone? Have I deliberately cheated anyone? Have I cheated God of His tithes and offerings? Have I uh, carried an unforgiveness toward anyone in my heart? Uh, do I have bitterness in my heart toward anyone? Am I faithful to my spouse? Or am I filled with pride and seeking honor for myself? Examine yourself, the Apostle Paul said. Confess, repent before you participate. Only confession and repentance qualifies us to coming to the Lord's table in a worthy manner, not unworthy manner. And that is why the Lord's table is only for believers. An unbeliever can go to Mass or to communion every day of the week. It ain't going to save him. It ain't going to save him. It's for those who are saved to remember the source of their salvation. I try to make that as clear as I can every time we celebrate the Lord's table. Verse 30, look at it carefully. Underline it in your Bible. Imprint it. Imprint it in the cortex of your head and your brain and your heart. If a person persistently comes to the Lord's table without confession and repentance, it has not only spiritual repercussions, it can have physical repercussion. Some people actually died as a result of approaching the Lord's table in an unworthy manner. That's what he said here. Ananias and Sapphira, book of Acts chapter 5, they were believers. But somehow in their hearts they chose to lie to the Holy Spirit, lie to the church of Jesus Christ, and they were snuffed out immediately and died, both of them. That's what I call being slain in the Spirit. <laughs> Listen to me. If we judge ourselves, if we examine ourselves, uh, if we confess our sin, 
God is faithful and just to forgive us all our sins. But if we don't, if we don't judge ourselves, if we don't examine ourselves, if we don't confess our sins, if we don't seek His forgiveness, we open ourselves up to be judged by God and by others. Now, beloved, listen to me. God is not looking for perfection. Can you say that with me? God is not looking for perfection. He knows that's only going to happen when we are there with Him in heaven. David, the Bible said of David that he was a man whose heart after God's. You know David was not perfect, right? (laughs) But he knew how to repent. Whenever he came under conviction, he repented of his sin. He didn't try to explain it away. He didn't try to rationalize it. He just wept tears. I want to tell you a true story as I conclude. And I pray that the image will stay with you. It's a true story. In fact, the man who has experienced the experience I'm going to share with you have preached in this church back in the 90s more than once. His name is Dr. George Sweeting. He was the chancellor of Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. One year in the springtime, he took his family and they went to Niagara Falls. And Dr. Sweeting was talking about being springtime. Uh, All the ice was melting and coming down the fall into the river. And he was watching as a great observer that he is, and he looked at these blocks of ice floating down fast as they go over the cliff, over the falls, Niagara Falls. Inside those ice blocks, they're the caucus of the fish that froze inside the ice. And there were thousands upon thousands of seagulls who come in and start picking in that ice, trying to get the fish out of the inside of the ice. And they keep doing this, and they keep doing this, whether we large or small pieces, and until they see themselves coming close to the brink, coming close to that Niagara Fall, and then they mount their wings, and they fly away and save themselves. Dr. Sweeting tells of a specific seagull that he was watching who delayed his flight until it came to a very dangerous point. This particular seagull was so engrossed in picking on that ice, trying to get the fish out, and so engrossed, and he finally seized that that this ice is about to go over the cliff and, 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 and he's going to fall in the blink, brink, as it were, and mounted his powerful wings. And he began to flap and flap and flap, even lifted the ice on which his claws were fixed on it, was hooked on it. But it was too late. It was too late. Alas, that seagull has delayed its flight too long so that the claws had become frozen into the ice. The weight of the ice 
was too great for the powerful, this poor seagull, and he plunged into the abyss. My beloved friends, I plead with you today, I plead with you today, that you comprehend what the Lord's table is all about, that when you go to the Lord's table anywhere, anytime, in any church, without confess, confession and repentance, you're like that seagull. When you do it over and over and over again, without casting the weight of sin, when you come to the Lord's table without self-examination and judging of yourself and repentance, when you come to the Lord's table out of habit and as a ritual, just this is just the way things, we've done it, and, and it's the right thing to do. You are heading for the danger of a believer's judgment. And I don't know what form that takes. I shared with you back in, when I, in the early part of this series from chapter 5, where Paul said, when a persistent sinning Christian, who is an elect of God, when he persists or she persists in that sin, sometimes God takes the life in order to save the soul. Last week, I heard about a 30-year-old person who's been writing blogs, who was a believer, went to a, a Christian college, and evangelical, loved the Lord, turned her back, and began to write against biblical orthodoxy without even understanding what happened at 38 years of age, she dropped dead after influencing tens of thousands of young people with her erroneous heretical thoughts. Now, beloved, I I'm not just preaching to you. I'm preaching to me, every one of us need to be reminded of the grace of God, the graciousness of God that He's willing to forgive whenever we ask, whenever we repent. Amen? Amen? May God, may God grant every one of us a repentant spirit. Father, I pray, as I pray for me personally, I pray for every one of beloved friends and people who are here and watching. May You give us a sobering spirit before it may be too late for some. Father, I pray in the name of Jesus that you wake your people up. The time of ignorance God has overlooked, but now it is time that He commands everyone everywhere to repent. May, be, may we be repentant people. For Jesus' sake, I pray. Amen. Stand up and bless the Lord with us.